Welcome to Article One, a show about lawmakers, legislating, and the politics that make Congress work. I'm your host, Molly Hooper, longtime Capitol Hill reporter, sharing with you my one-on-one conversations with Democrats and Republicans who are in the Senate, the House, on the trail, and behind the scenes. In this episode, I speak with Francis Rooney, a Republican Florida lawmaker who came to Congress in 2016 and after only four years has opted not to run for re-election. It's an unusual move for Congress people, but not unusual for Rooney. He says he made good on his original campaign promises and it's time to go. We get into that in our conversation. Recently, Rooney has challenged his party, including personalities like President Donald Trump and policy stances on issues like the environment. We discuss those issues and more. Now on to the discussion. Man, I got to tell you, and this, this actually goes to one of my first questions for you. So how have you enjoyed remote hearings? Have you had any remote hearing fails, so to speak? No, we've had a lot of remote hearings. I think they work just fine. Oh. The, the members behave better because there's less TV around. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I got to tell you, though, I just love those remote hearings. I watch them, and I think they're just very entertaining, and it sort of humanizes members of Congress. No, I think they're fine. They're, all, they're much more brass tacks just down to business. I know. It's kind of nice, and people can't yeah. really interrupt each other, and um, it's it's been very interesting to see how all this has played out. It's, yeah. sort of in, it's interesting how the House has, has adapted for the coronavirus with the proxy voting. How do you feel about the proxy voting? I know that you're the only Republican well, I who's urge, done that. I, I urged the Speaker to do it. I told her I thought it was a great idea. And uh, I've been proxy voting with Don Beyer ever since the start. Why do you think more Republicans haven't sort of got on board, so to speak? I don't understand. I mean, I don't understand why not. It's a logical answer to the problem for people that have had asthma or older or feel at risk or whatever. And the fact the the only arguments I've heard is it gives the speaker too much power. But I think that's specious because the the votes are however the member wants to vote it. I mean, Don Byers voted against some of his own bills, for me. and but there's a, most of them I vote with him anyway. But right. I, I just don't understand the Republican intransigence. It's kind of like there's a lot of things right now that whether they have to do with the uh, adoration of Trump or what, that Republicans don't seem to be able to embrace any new ideas. I mean, look at the gun and the environmental areas. The mood of the country is going one way, but Republicans don't seem to be able to move. Uh, off the off the off the goal line, you know, off the twenty yard line, you know. That's a great transition because one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, what are what do you consider some of your greatest accomplishments on behalf of your constituents? And that sort of fits into the question on the environment because I know you've done a lot for you know the Everglades in your area and and the the wetland the wetlands. Now the reason I ran for this was because the the comprehensive Everglades restoration plan was passed in two thousand. And uh, it hadn't had much appropriated money, and none of the major projects had been completed. So it's just kind of languishing out there. So I decided to run and see if we couldn't get a little more money. And we've gotten $2 billion in four years. So it's stepped up the bar, raised the bar a lot. Uh, we've got enough money now to, to complete the repairs to the Herbert Hoover Dyke and store more water, uh, to mm-hmm. build the A2 reservoir to move more water south into the Everglades. Okay. Uh, we're finished the Picayune Strand over by Naples, which is a drainage project into the uh, western part of Florida Bay. Those are important things. Well, tell me why that's important. Well, explain it, I guess, to the person, to the individual who doesn't live in your district, why it is so important that the Everglades get this restoration money. Well, first of all, it's it's a huge natural resource. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. it's a natural resource for 
you know, animals and birds and all that kind of stuff, as well as a huge watershed and rainmaker, which affects the weather in all of southwest, all, all of South Florida. And mm-hmm. that's important to have the fresh water. If you don't have the fresh water, you're going to have saltwater intrusion. And then you've got all kinds of problems with what happens to the land. So, so, so going back kind of to your original point on the environment, on that issue at least, where are Republicans on, uh, you know, climate change, conservationism, the environmental yeah, my, my policy? Big, uh, my big goal has been to persuade the Republican leadership that they need to be catering to a broadening base of electorate. And that includes mm-hmm. young people who are the most rapidly growing base of voters in the future. <laughs> Right. The polling of younger people and even in suburban people, if, if you want, college educated people is very mm-hmm. strong on, on uh, enacting reasonable gun reform and in terms of supporting uh, uh, measures to deal with uh, sea level rise, climate change, et cetera. And so I think that, you know, we used to have a seat at that table. I mean, the Republicans were the original environmentalists, but we seem to have lost our way. Right. I mean, super funds. That was President Reagan, right? Yeah, and both of the Bushes expanded the Clean Air Act. Nixon mm-hmm. passed the EPA and the Clean Air Act. You know, we, we, we have had a seat at that table for many years, but somehow or another the last, I don't know, since President Bush, we've kind of lost it. And I wonder why that is. Is it because we're seeing more, and I don't want to use the word extreme, maybe more ideologically driven groups coming from the left? Or is it this issue that, um, where there's a big controversy over whether climate change is man-made versus, you know, that this was going to happen anyway, you know, evolutionary, because I just don't understand it. What with, like, green jobs and technology, clean energy technology sort of becoming a boon industry, and, and it has the potential to be I one. Think, I think a lot of Republicans have become captured by a very rigid ideology around, centered around things like denying climate, the human role in climate change and, deny, and, and this uh, – uh, expansive view of the Second Amendment, which re- which would uh, impede any kind of reform at all about the dealing with handguns and rifles and all that kind of stuff. So when you talk to leaders, when you talk to Republican leaders or or committee chairmen in in your party, senators, what are you hearing from them? Why aren't they willing to move? Well, I think some of them get it intellectually that the young people. Have, I've given them a lot of polling, mm-hmm. and and they get the, the that the young people feel certain ways and that we need to reach out to more voters, but they just can't make the ideological jump. And you've heard the stuff that's said on the House floor about the environment and guns and all that kind of stuff. It's pretty pretty rigid ideologies there. And some of the ones on the left go too far. Well, that's what I mean. It, it sort of seems like both parties, and, and again, this is both parties, and, and the ideological extremes, if you will, um, they, they do become very rigid. In, in their opinions of things. And it almost feels like even if they let up just a little bit, that somehow that issue will be taken away from them. I was talking to Dave Schweikert the other day, who was talking to me about all this new technology for clean energy and how he was talking to some Democrats about this. And, and, and they were getting very sort of possessive of it. Like, wait, no, that's our issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really needs to be bipartisan. I mean, it used to be issues could be bipartisan that were important. So, so it's very interesting talking to you because you come in with sort of a different perspective than the other retiring lawmakers in that you were elected in 2016 when the president was elected. And, you know, I've covered Congress for a very long time. I was a House page back in the day. I mean, I go back, way back with Congress. And there really has been a marked difference in 
how Congress deals with um, this non-traditional executive in charge. Based on, based on your experience, what do you wish you knew as a freshman about being an effective member of the House in the age of President Trump? Well, I, I, don't, I don't understand the uh, blind uh, loyalty to, to President Trump. I'm, no one ever had that with Reagan or Bush or Clinton or anybody else. You know, right. I mean, remember how hard it was to scrounge up votes for CAFTA DR and for immigration yeah. reform and No Child Left Behind and all that. Right. And, and so this is a very strange thing. And I don't think it's particularly healthy just to blindly follow someone. That's not what our democracy and First Amendments are all about. Well, it sort of seems like, and this, this is what frustrates me, I'm not really a Democrat, I'm not really a Republican, I'm sort of an independent, I guess, because both sides make good points on a lot of things. But what I am is a legislatively biased gal. You know, I think Congress is Article 1, well, Article 1 with Molly Hooper. Um, it was the first branch of government created for a reason. And when, and when Congress is unified, you can actually get a lot done. So but that's when you're not, a very important point. In 1972, I think it was, or 73, uh, Arthur Schlesinger wrote a book called The Imperial Presidency, bemoaning yes. Nixon's power grab with revenue sharing and the Vietnam War and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. and getting off the gold standard. And uh, since that time, of course, it's obviously gotten much worse, more and more executive orders. Obama took it to a whole new level, and now right. Trump's taking it to the same level. And, and I think it's uh, the, the – I've thought a lot about this. I, I think the quest for money – and votes and perpetual re-election has turned Congress into a very risk-averse body. No right. one wants to risk losing a vote or a dollar. As such, they, they're more than willing to cede power, and this has been going on a long time, it's just under Trump, uh, cede power to the executive. And it drives me not These nefarious doctrines like the unitary presidency that Scalia came up with, I think is absolutely ridiculous. We have a constitution with separation of powers, and that's being undermined all the time. That's why I voted against a lot of these things Trump's tried to do, like the two emergency declarations or the, right. the uh, opposing the two-state solution in Israel or, or uh, opposing uh, the requirement of a new uh, authorization of military force for Yemen. You know, right. I, I voted against the president on all that kind of stuff. Well, but there were also some other Republicans who did vote that way, I mean, against the president as well. Um, there were a couple, not very many. I was going to say, it's kind of like the Blue Dog caucuses now, very sparse. Uh, what kind of feedback do you get from other members of Congress, or do your Republican colleagues even really mind because they're so they're so focused on their own reelection that hey hey Francis if you, Ambassador if you want to do that go for it. Really, uh, I, so I think that they're I think that that point about everybody's individualistic and focused on their own success is is a good one. I think there's a lot of that down there. Mm -hmm. I've had any particular blowback. I I've had a couple people you know question it and I'll explain it. So, okay, you know, whatever you think, you know, but uh, I've worked very, you know, I've got good relationships with all the leadership and all the people that um, do things down there. It's just that I disagree with the president on a lot of stuff. You know, it's interesting because I was looking at your background and you, you were in real estate development. You're a businessman, also has a law degree. That's very cool. Um, what do you, Going into Congress, what had that experience prepared you for? In, I mean, were you able to use that experience in the House? Yeah, I don't I, know. I think I'm much more independent than most of these members. First of all, because I really don't care about having the job or not having the job. I mean, I care that's, about that's what I got thing. elected to do. And, and that gives me an independence to act uh, 
you know, the way I want to act. And mm -hmm. I think being in business and having financial independence is also important. And uh, I certainly didn't need it. I didn't take any PAC money right. and all right. that kind of stuff. And it would be better if we had more people that come from uh, business and, and careers and don't need the job so much, kind of like what the founders were. It would be a better situation than what we have. Well, but, you know, President Trump, he touts his business experience and his leader in the, the, the real estate world. Do you see that, do you see his background coming into play with the decisions he's made and the way that he's built relations or not built relations on Capitol Hill? Mm, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I think he's certainly, he's used to making decisions. <laughs> and that comes from business where you have to make decisions all the time. Right. Uh, I think that he's, uh, willing to, to to be tough and be a New York real estate developer, I imagine you've got to be pretty tough. Right. It just, it just, it seems like, again, and I, this goes back to that point on Article 1 versus Article 2. I mean, the legislative branch has just given so much power to the executive, and, and it just feels like, how is this sustainable? Yeah, um, and to the courts. There was an article the other day in the Wall Street okay. Journal about how the courts have stepped into the breach since the, uh, uh, the, the legislative bodies have become so powerless. Well, that's you know, they're just thing. totally incapable of dealing with any difficult issue. They're exactly. really good at naming post offices and, <laughs> and things like that. But, but when it comes to immigration reform, trade, I mean, NAFTA, which was a no-brainer, I think the president actually improved it a little bit with the new NAFTA, uh, was a no-brainer, and even it was difficult to get across the finish line. What do you think it will take to... to change the mindset up on Capitol Hill, or do you think we're sort of still, we're headed in this direction of even more executive power, the, the, unitar the unilateral presidency? To put some teeth in Congress and make it worth it, I think you need to do three things. Okay. If possible, you should return the fairness doctrine so that mm -hmm. uh, media, when they talk about political positions, have to air both sides. Okay. The rise of partisan media uh, can be tracked to the elimination of the Fairness Doctrine in 1986. Okay. I don't know how you do it, with it with, and you've got to deal with these digital people somehow or another. I know. The other thing is I think we need term limits. I guess I'm a digital limits. person right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we need term limits desperately. You okay. know, the founders didn't say anything about term limits because I doubt they would ever have expected there to arise a political class. Right. None of these guys wanted to serve full-time. They did their job, and they went back to their farm or their company or whatever they did. Right. And it, it, they, they, the revolution was in part fought against having an entrenched professional political class, right. the monarchical, monarchical bureaucracies. Mm -hmm. And now that's what we've got. We've got people who've been up there 32 years. Yes, they've been up and, there a uh, very long time. <laughs> and, and so I think that would be a very important thing, but I don't know how you're going to get it done. I mean, you know, there's like 50 term limit bills that all require a constitutional amendment. They have right. tons of sponsors, but no, it's all just show for the people back home. I right. introduced a bill that would just cut off your pay after 12 years, and I think I've got like 15 sponsors, but it does not require a constitutional amendment. I have to go look at that bill. I have to go look yeah, at that bill and see who the sponsors were. And then the other thing would be uh, redistricting at the state level to have less partisan districts so that the right. elections take place in the general, not the primaries, because that right. drives everybody to extremes. It, it, it does seem to do that because, you know, even before this, these, this recent few years of of extreme ideological partisan members, like I remember when the Tea Party came in, you know, a lot of Republicans were worried. Oh no, if I don't if I don't go along with some of these 
these views, then I'm going to get primaried. It's like the Trump factor right now. I mean, right. If Trump says something bad about you, and you're in one of these highly partisan districts, you're dead meat. Well, well, okay. So here, okay. So here's a question about that. I and I know I'm. I was not very good at statistics. Frankly, last you know the last presidential election polling, how everybody got it wrong, sort of like proved my point that statistics really don't matter. Just kidding. But based on the polls we've seen recently, the president hasn't been doing that great. And I'm wondering what you're seeing in your district, in your area in Florida, how how the your constituents are feeling about the president's job and whether they're going to support him. Well, most of the hardcores, you know, are solid behind the president. Right. And this district, my area, Lee and Collier County, delivered 50,000 more Republican votes for Trump in 2016 than they did for Romney in 2012. So it'll be very interesting to watch the turnout down there and see if that level of enthusiasm is replicated this time. I think you're going to see more Democrat votes than we've ever seen down there, but there won't be enough to elect any Democrats or anything. Okay. I gotcha. But but what about Florida as as a whole? Florida as a whole is about as purple as it can get. And it could go either way. Look at look at all the elections since 2000. They've been a hair splitter. I mean, right. Trump won by like 150,000 votes. So mm-hmm. 56,000 of them came from Lee and Collier County, I guess, and, uh, <laughs> and the Panhandle. The way Florida is, is the Panhandle and Southwest Florida are really super Republican, and the I-4 corridor and the Southeast Coast are really super Democrat. So we're talking Miami. Um, on on that coast, those are super Democrat. That's super Democrat. Whereas yeah, I say Boca States, Raton all the way down to the Keys through the Keys. Okay, but on the Gulf Coast, where where you are, Naples, that tends to, that is more Republican. Totally, and the further north you go, <laughs> it gets a little more balanced. I mean, I think Sarasota, I think Vern Buchanan's district is like an R plus three or four. You know, it's not like right. mine, the R plus ten or something. But and then Tampa, you know, you got Charlie Crist in there. So it's a little more balanced. And then you get north of Tampa and it gets really hardcore Republican again. That's the whole panhandle backcountry. Like Ted Yoho. Uh, yeah. All the way up uh, to Matt Gates to Pensacola. Escambia, ah. Escambia, Santa Rosa, Okaloosa, Walton, and Bay Counties. That's Pensacola through Panama City. They they are heavy Republican. Well, well how are you feeling about Voting for President Trump. I, I understand that you were just, you were thinking about voting for uh, Vice President Biden. Where are you on that? Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, there's a lot of things he's done that I like, but most any good Republican would have done them anyway. And there's a lot <laughs> of things he's done that I don't like. And so I think me. some of his uh, some of his mannerisms have helped damage our brand, if you will. Okay. And the adoration that he's elicited from elected officials has turned the Republicans in the House and Senate into a uh, uh, you know, kind of a specter of what they used to be. Why, why, what is it about, it sort of seems like the cult of personality of Donald Trump. Because I, I didn't see that with George W. Bush. I mean, people love Barack Obama, but it, it wasn't, Democrats, some, I mean, Democrats voted against Barack Obama. I mean, it, it was oh, very Obama difficult. didn't have this thing, neither did Reagan, Bush, Clinton. I've never heard of this, this kind of adoration. That, 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 that. I know a lot of people in my area feel that he represents the forgotten people. That this, this business about anti-globalization, anti-immigration, anti-diversity, uh, feeling threatened by the changes that have taken place in the country the last 20 or 30 years is, is palpable. And it was much stronger than any of us realized or expected. And well, that's what well, got him there. Well, the interesting thing is, is in talking to Republicans after the president was elected up on Capitol Hill, many of the Republicans, including Jim Jordan, were really concerned that this that President-elect Trump was going to revert to his his, Democrat, his New York Democratic ways 
and actually, you know, sort of undermine the conservative agenda. But well, when the Democratic leaders totally rejected him, he kind of went the opposite direction. Yeah, he started out hanging around with the Speaker and Schumer quite a bit, and things were kind of on a bipartisan path there in the early months, and 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 that changed. I I don't know what he'll do if he's reelected though, because he doesn't seem to have any kind of basis of prince longstanding political agendas and principles like all these other people have had. And who knows what he might, he might turn out to be? Just want to spend all the money he can, have everybody love him. You never know. Well, see, and, and that's actually, again, t- privately talking to Republicans in 2016 after he became the nominee, mm-hmm. even, even, and this is funny, even Republicans in the House who went to work for him <laughs> at the yeah. White House. Well, he was pro-choice, all- right, when he was in New York before he ran Absolutely. for president. Absolutely. But they were just like, what is this guy going to do? He just, we don't know, because if Democrats end up being nice to him, he's going to do whatever they want. And, you know, the second that the speaker, the best thing that happened, I was talking to a member of the Freedom Caucus, was when was when basically Dick Durbin came out after that initial meeting that the president had with the Democratic leaders and basically said, this president, you know, he, he basically leaks the whole conversation and it, it, it appeared to be this attack on President Trump. And, you know, this, this member from the Freedom Caucus was like, that's probably the best thing that happened to our cause. Because probably second, is. You know, and um, it just it just seems so, so interesting. And, you know, I've, I've seen your criticisms of the president and the way that he's handled the coronavirus. Specifically, what what has he done that 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 you find particularly on um, well, First of all, from what I've come to understand, he was briefed by the intelligence, uh, some of the different intelligence agencies that knew what was going on with the virus and what was going on around the world, Italy and everywhere else, mm-hmm. uh, as early as January 3rd. Right. And then 11 other times in January and February. Even Peter Navarro wrote memos in January and February right. saying, we've got to do something about this. And it was just nothing but denial. And, then, and now there's still no national strategy. I mean, if this was anything else, we would have a national coronavirus uh, testing, tracing, uh, uh, healthy habits uh, campaign going on, led by the president. What did you think about him getting COVID? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's sooner or later bound to happen if you don't wear a mask, right? Right. And it just sort of seems like where's, what, what kind of message does that send? Um, well, I'll tell you what, if I were a donor, mm-hmm. I wouldn't feel so great about having attended a fundraiser after he knew he had COVID. I wouldn't feel well, so great about that at all. No. I, I mean, I wouldn't feel great about that if, if well, well, that goes to the issue of Capitol Hill because there isn't really a testing, a, a tra- testing strategy up on Capitol Hill either. But where is the leadership when it comes to these issues, and why? In talking to your fellow Republicans, what what is this? this it's the Trump thing. Nobody wants to stick their head up and take the chance of being criticized by Trump. I'm sure you pick that up when you talk to all these people. Well, I do, and I just I don't really I don't really get it because again, you know, I, I get I get. I get supporting somebody. I get supporting, you know, if I was a member of Congress, I would get supporting my party leader. But that doesn't mean that you can't have disagreements with those people and vote according to your district and how your district is faring. Yeah, or what you personally believe. That's kind of what our Constitution is all about, that it's not a monarchy or an authoritarian uh, rule. Do you see any Republicans in the conference right now who could challenge a second term President Trump, maybe like a Liz Cheney who would sort of, because I have noticed that Liz Cheney does stand up um, 
to the president when he says certain things. Um, she has done, yeah. She has, especially in the, with the military area, when he's de- de- denigrated the military. Right, but but are there any other Republicans who could sort of take on that role and basically say, hey, and not necessarily in a public way, but just go behind the scenes, listen, what you're doing, this is not helping our members at all. Well, I, I think that as long as he's got the hold on the base, the, people are going to be really careful about getting on the wrong side of him. Because he'll be gone, if he gets reelected, he'll be done in four years, but they're going to want to keep their jobs. That's the whole problem. So what happens if he is not reelected? What happens to the Republican conference in the House and the Senate? Well, I, I don't know. I hope we keep the Senate. Mm-hmm. I think the math is difficult, but I think we, I hope we will, and, and at least keep part of the government and uh, start to rebuild. I would like to see the party rebuild around a broader coalition, more more of the traditional Republican uh, uh, views of the economy, but also balanced with some of the other views that, that are uh, at the forefront right now. Remember, President Bush tried to make the assault weapon ban permanent. Uh, Reagan outlawed Saturday night specials. Right. You know, uh, Bush expanded the Clean Air Act and, fun- and got the CERP passed, the, the thing that I've been trying to get the money for, the Everglades restoration. That was what George W. and Jeb as governor and Mel Martinez got done. And he also yeah, but- got the offshore drilling ban passed in the eastern Gulf of Mexico. Wait, was that when his brother, I think I remember, was that when his brother was governor also? Uh-huh. I remember I remember it was a big deal. I think I think Jeb Bush was up at the up on up on Capitol Hill. And I remember asking him, and this is when the whole offshore drilling ban was an issue. I go, do you, do you ever sit around the dinner table at Thanksgiving and say, hey, George, can you help me out with this? <laughs> you know. Um, but in truth, and in fact, he did. The president yeah. got behind the Florida agenda that Jeb, these things that Jeb and Mel Martinez pushed, and then they got it done. Right. They did. And, and that was that was good for Florida. Do you think that what the president, so the, first of all, the money that you did get for um, for Southwest Florida, that has been appropriated, right? Or is it oh, authorized? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that, it's that's all appropriated. Okay, because that's all. And a lot of it's been spent. Oh, okay. They sped up construction of the Herbert Hoover Dyke, double the rate of construction. They're funding the pre-engineering studies for the A2 Reservoir, and they're finishing the Picayune Strand project. How many jobs do you think that creates? Oh, or, I don't know. Or, or, or tourism will it draw to the area? Well, first of all, if you ruin the Everglades, you're going to really have a problem in South Florida, east and west coast, because of the changes in weather that would follow from not having the rainmaker. Right. That would be a serious problem. Okay. So when you talk about tourism, you talk about no offshore drilling. You talk about keeping the estuaries in good shape. You talk about the Everglades restoration to keep salt water at bay, preserve the mangroves. Those things all fit together to create the environmental uh, quality that people come to Florida for. And this is another question. I, I guess I'm sort of circling back to the original, your greatest accomplishments. I've noticed that there are more Republicans who um, are sort of embracing maybe man-made climate change, or, or they're sort of starting to gradually change a little bit. I've, I've noticed several members in the House. How many members in the House and the Republican caucus would you say are are becoming more open-minded to pushing uh you know, more environmental policies. Yeah, I think there's at least 10, maybe a few more. I think that uh, Kevin McCarthy's been a real leader in that. I think mm-hmm. I, I think he understands the polling that I've given him. I think he gets it intellectually, and mm-hmm. he's tried to lead them in the areas where they will go, like talking about carbon sequestration, planting trees, some of the uh, safer, if you will, less controversial remedies to deal with uh, increased CO2 and, and climate change. 
Uh, right. Now there's more and more talk about resiliency measures because of sea level rise. Because mm-hmm. that's a bipartisan thing. If you're on the coast, it doesn't matter what you are, you're going to have flooding. Right. And there's uh, people are starting to realize about hurricanes now with the, the, the oceans in the Gulf of Mexico are warming up. Gulf of Mexico right now is warmer than it's ever been. That's how come that hurricane that hit Beaumont mm-hmm. uh, uh, grew from a Category 1 to a Category 4 in like 10 hours when it gets wow. up in that really hot water. I mean, and these storms just seem to be getting so much bigger and badder, and the fires seem to be getting bigger and badder. And and there's got to be a reason for it. And, it. and, you know, just because China's not necessarily making, you know, adopting more clean energy development, or that doesn't mean that the United States can't. We well, can't yeah, we, yeah, we have our own water to take care of. We've got the Gulf, we've got the Atlantic coast. You know, we could we could improve how we deal with our water. You know, the Pinnacamp Park there in the Florida Keys is all full of dead coral because of coral Ugh. bleaching and because of the temperature rising. Wow. So well, there's things we can do regardless of what China and the Philippines and all those other people do. Do you think Congress has the appetite to do Do you think that the Senate, as it's made up now, has the appetite to do something like that? No. Why not? I don't think Mitch McConnell is bioadapted to uh, do anything not in the interest of energy uh, companies, oil and gas and coal. I guess Kentucky needs more big storms. No. <laughs> just, just I'm, I'm But, you know, uh, with Trump doing the offshore billing, drilling ban, that was a good thing. And maybe maybe people will start to, uh, you know, realize that, if, that, that uh, if he's willing to do that, this is a serious situation, the environmental <laughs> issues. Well, now, now I've I've seen that some some of the Florida congresswomen, the Democratic congresswomen, have, have criticized the president for for doing this as a political move, you know, to to get to win Florida in in 2020, obviously, because it, it he has done the moratorium, but can't since it was done by executive order, can't it be undone by the next president, or couldn't he even undo it? He could. That's why I think we need to pass my bill, the one that the speaker got passed for me, to ban was, it permanently. So and does Marco Rubio, does he support that? Do you have yes. Rick Scott both on board? Rick Scott and Marco both support banning offshore drilling, absolutely. And uh, they would be Collins? willing to take a temporary ban where I was going for a permanent ban, but that's only because they didn't think they thought I had a better chance of getting done, and I agree with them. I'd take whatever we can get. Right. Um, so, so, and it is Mitch McConnell, and it's because of the energy company. Uh, I, I think so, and just the whole Republican mantra about drill, baby, drill. Remember all that business? Well, yes, actually, actually, Uh, you got to remember, we had the entire Florida delegation lined up uh, on the offshore drilling bill. Wow. I mean, that you guys have a very diverse delegation, too. Mm -hmm. That's how we got all the money for the Everglades. We got the entire Florida delegation united behind the Everglades. And for, for people listening, that getting such a diverse delegation together to support something like that, I mean, that's a lot of money that you were able to get back to southwest Florida and you did it in a Congress that have been seemingly divided, not just since 2016. I mean, before that as well. But but in this climate, this political climate, doing something like that is very difficult. Yeah, you, and, and, you know, I worked it hard. I worked the Republicans. I, I made the arguments uh, on behalf of Florida. Uh, mm-hmm. We had a lot of uh, Florida delegation meetings about it, and we had speakers talk about it and things like that. And I also worked the Democrats. And I have to say that when the, the Democrats took the House, uh, Congresswoman McCollum and mm-hmm. uh, Captor have been very helpful. Uh, Marcy Captor looks after Interior, 
and uh, McCollum looks after the Corps of Engineers appropriations, and they have been super, super supportive of the Everglades. Well, you got to get to those appropriators. They're the best when it comes to, when it comes to bipartisanship. Right. Um, and I, I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek. And, and that actually goes to another question I have on earmarks. Recently, the House Rules Committee had their members' day hearing on potential rules changes for the 117th Congress, and we heard from leaders like Steny Hoyer, Clyburn, some Republicans as well, who are essentially saying, hey, let's get some uh, congressionally directed spending, a.k.a. earmarks, back in the picture so Congress can have a, a bigger role in how our taxpayers are being spent and making sure that money comes back to the districts that need it. Do you think that if that Congress did adopt earmarks, or the House, um, you know, brought back earmarks, that would help Congress move forward on, on a lot of bills? You know, I'm not for them. I, I, I just think it just creates more pork. Okay. And the problem with Congress being weak and inefficient doesn't have anything to do with earmarking money to go back home for a congressman to help get reelected. It has to do mm -hmm. with the inability to take risk and step out and take make any hard decisions that, that might get you in trouble in keeping your job. And that has nothing to do with earmarks. That has to do with the whole thing we we're talking about, about the evisceration of the Article One power. You'd think that, oh, I, and I understand the risk averseness and self-preservation and all that, but sometimes, I mean, it just seems like if you're running for office and you're really sticking your neck out there, you want to make it count. You would think. And, you know, I mean, I mean, it, it seems like there's about 5% of, of the population really tunes in and zones in on this, this, this political, all the political debates and, and what's going on in Congress and the House and these Twitters and all But the rest of the population is just kind of getting ready for retirement. They, they want to go see their kids play sports or whatever it is. Um, and, and you'd think that those people would, would you know, be, you know, they, would, they, they aren't paying as much attention to what the president is doing or what he's saying about an individual member of Congress. Yeah, but that's why polls say like less than 10% of people think Congress is any good, you know, because they aren't. <laughs> so, so you also have a very interesting background in that you were an ambassador to the Holy See, the Vatican. Mm -hmm. um, did that experience help prepare you to be a member of Congress? No. I mean, other than, you know, having a broad understanding of how the world works and what's going on in a lot of countries and things like that. But I kind of had that anyway. We've been involved in international business for a long time. How do you see the foreign policy of the U.S. right now? What is going on with North Korea? Well, I think that uh, uh, North Korea hasn't responded so well to Trump's overtures. Like, I just read an article over there that continue to develop their nuclear stuff. Right. And so I don't know that we've achieved any substantial uh, substantive uh, improvement. I think that we have uh, caused a lot of pain to a lot of our allies around the world. You know, okay. We've seen the president of the Philippines saddle up to China because he's, you know, instead of the United States, which is highly unusual since they've been a very strong ally for many years. Uh, right. Look at the things in Europe. You know, I mean, I absolutely think that NATO could use a bit of a tune-up and right. maybe some redeployment of some assets towards closer to the hot spots in the world, but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you want to get rid of NATO. NATO is a, a very important multilateral organization that keeps the um, uh, Atlantic Alliance uh, together. But uh, so a lot of the, the commentary has been pretty negative about that. Mm -hmm. and we didn't do the TPP. I, I urged the president to do the TPP treaty and provide that trade alliance 
that also bleeds into Security Alliance for all of the non-China Asian countries that desperately need it, and we need them. And this is the agreement that essentially the Obama administration had hammered out before President Trump came into office. Yeah, but right. it's been worked on all since the Bush years and everything else. You know, it's just an improvement over what was in place before. And, and now you've what? got something called the uh, Pacific Alliance, which is right. all the Western uh, South America countries up through Mexico. And, and if they start looking westward instead of northward, I think that's a problem for us. We should be building ties with them, just right. like we should have TTIP in Europe. You know, on that point about the Pacific Alliance um, and, and China, this virus, the coronavirus, came from China. And yeah. what can, I mean, I remember it's, it's sort of in the beginning of the, the coronavirus, maybe in March and April, there was a, a huge focus on bringing manufacturing back to the United States and sort of re, reclaiming our role in essentially our self-preservation and, and less reliance on China to get our goods and, and some of our services, for, as a matter of fact. But what has happened since then? Can we do that? Is there a way to, to, to effectively do that so that businesses do want to um, open up in the United States? There's been some repatriation of, of economic uh, activity to the United States and a lot more to other countries in Asia, like Vietnam, Malaysia, mm -hmm. Indonesia, and to uh, Mexico and some Latin American countries. And, and I think that's a really fertile opportunity because they have a cost structure which is more uh, which is more competitive than ours. But it's it's very important that we reorient some supply chains away from these authoritarian regimes. I mean, imagine the, the things you have to get from China that you can't get anywhere else. Right. Uh, all these electronic devices, uh, capacitors, resistors that go into all kinds of things, mm -hmm. a lot of drug-related components, uh, not to mention rare earth metals. Right, right. So I think it's very important. I think the, 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 the concept's a good concept. How you do it needs to be a little broader than just made in the United States. It needs to be made in countries that are friendly to the United States, that have the same values that we have like Europe, Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. uh, most of Latin America, not all of it, that, that where we could improve our lie. Well, it's like made in the United States with American-made goods. Yeah, and also there's some things that are never going to come back because of technology. You know, that, that we just have to face the fact that we have evolved into much more of a service economy and right. service jobs aren't as uh, highly paid as a lot of the old style manufacturing jobs. And that's that's an issue. And that's why wages haven't gone up and why the inequality's gotten worse. And, and I think that it would be nice for Republicans to have a seat at solving that through free enterprise instead of waiting for Democrats to solve it through a bigger government. Well, what, where have the Republicans been? Because I did, I did again. In the beginning of the coronavirus, I was seeing this call for American, you know, bringing companies back to America, providing more, you know, of the supplies, as you said, to, to the United States. And and since then, I mean, I hear the talk, but I haven't seen a lot of movement on legislation that would mm -hmm. work regulation. You explain this. Well, you probably can't explain this better than I am. But in terms, of, if I'm an, if I'm a company and I'm a, and I want to produce a product, say I want to make gloves. There's a lot of regulations and costs associated with doing that in in the United States, right? Well, first of all, Obama put on a lot of really uh, bad uh, regulations on employment, hiring, firing, dealing with employees, business, the the uh, uh, joint employer rule, all that kind of stuff. And fortunately, with a Republican in office, we got rid of all that stuff. 
the okay. changes to the wage and hour laws about exempt employees versus non-exempt, uh, the the uh, that single employer thing would have ruined franchising. What does that mean? Explain that. that single. That, that was that was a rule they put in that as it over that countered a, a, a Supreme Court case, uh, basically changing the test for when two different companies are considered a single employer. Oh. How much control and decision making one company has over the other one. And oh. there's been a settled test for years and years, which allows like franchises, subcontractors, uh-huh. uh, vendors, et cetera, to be considered as independent contractors vis-a-vis the, their contracting party. And okay. Obama's administration changed all that. Very dangerous thing. So there's a lot of things like that that have gotten cleaned up. There were some changes to some of the financial laws that got cleaned up. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, so that's But what, weren't a lot of those changes done by executive order? A lot of them were. Because, and we, and then, and I think it was, been a, it was a real failure in the 150th Congress not to pass a lot more of those things into laws. Some of them were laws and some of them were executive orders, but we should have got them all passed into laws. Just because, I mean, if, you, if you're looking at, say, if there is a President Biden, I mean, who's this? I mean, he was part of the Obama administration. Who's to say he won't come in and undo all that? That's right. That's, that's, it, that's why I think it was an error not to get more of that stuff passed into those laws. A lot of the ones, those CRAs, those regulatory reviews, did become laws. Okay. But a lot, but a lot of them didn't. Gotcha. It, it just seems like, you know, they're, they're regula- they're, a lot of regulations are there for a reason. But sometimes things can get overregulated. <laughs> yeah. Well, even if you inflation adjusted the minimum wage from the time that it was passed, it'd still be it'd be about eight bucks. Right. 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 Now maybe eleven. You know? Right. So I, I, one thing you can do to help deal with inequality is do the fifteen dollar minimum wage. I mean, you know, you might that that would that would help. And, so see, that doesn't sound very Republican of you right now. <laughs> well, that's, that's unfortunate for them. You know, inequality is a problem, and you've got to take some steps to try to fix it. That's why we have this jobless recoveries here and all this stuff. And 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 I think that uh, that's that's what I just don't feel sorry for McDonald's paying eight dollars to someone. You know, uh, right? That they can't right. live on. And right. that would probably help with the number of people on benefits. If you could reform benefits to make them more like business where you get you're incentivized to get off the benefits by by getting a job instead of penalized by getting a job well well, what did you make of of the unemployment insurance uh you know extending this federal unemployment insurance because of the coronavirus well the virus is a total different kettle of fish i mean that just takes some emergency action you got a lot of people that have lost their jobs and lost their companies and I think it's important that we spend money to minimize the damage until we get to come up with a vaccine and reduce this thing to another form of flu. We touched on this earlier. How hard hit have the businesses been in your district in Naples and Southwest Florida? Well, there have been a few, for sure. Hotels, tourism's mm-hmm. off, um, transportation's off, you know, the airports, restaurants, a lot of restaurants have closed. How optimistic are you that Congress will be able to send a, a fifth economic stimulus or fifth COVID relief package to the president. Oh, I'm pretty sure they will. I think they know they got a gun to their head. Okay. Who do you think is going to give, the Democrats or Republicans? Well, they'll probably meet, split the difference, something okay. around that 2.4 billion or something. I gotcha. Um, and and fi- finally, and thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Going back 
back to that that first question. What do what do you what kind of what advice do you have for the your successor? What advice do you uh, have for that person in well, terms of being effective in the house? Uh, me me to give anybody any advice. I will hope that he will continue the environmental work that's important to our area. And, but in, uh, in terms of being effective and getting it done to the president, getting uh, laws or legislation passed into well, the Well, anybody that comes in is going to be more following, more more willing to follow the leadership than me. <laughs> well, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, I don't know. Um, it hasn't inhibited me from getting things done for our district. But okay. then again, I, I had some outside um, relationships and I knew a lot of these people and stuff. So maybe this guy would, working with the leadership would, would be a better way to uh, to get the same kind of thing accomplished. I don't know. It'll be different. It will be, and what about your committees? What about committees coming in? Were you on the right committees? Did you, I mean, the Foreign Affairs Committee, that, that's a big well, one. Well, Foreign Affairs was definitely a no-brainer for me, and they may be vice chairman of it last time, and now I'm the ranking member for the Western Hemisphere. But uh, the other ones I really didn't care that much about. I went on education because being in, the, in business, I thought I could make a difference there. And mm-hmm. It's pretty frustrating. You know, we worked for two years to reform the Higher Ed Act. Never right. been changed since Johnson administration, and we couldn't get it. Paul Ryan couldn't get enough Republican votes to bring it to the floor. Why? Uh, a lot of university presidents uh, lobbied their congressmen against it because it was going to take money from higher ed and give it to career and technical education and VOTEC and, and, and uh, things like that, which actually create opportunities for employment. Well, what advice do you have for the future lawmakers in terms of dealing with lobbyists? Well, I, I, I think restricting have? lobbyists would be a good idea. The, the lounge lizards that crawl the halls. The lounge and, uh, lizards that crawl the halls. Now, that's very descriptive. I can see that in my mind's yeah. eye. <laughs> and uh, I, I just think there's, you, you just get pounded on from one side or the other for every position that you take. And it's, uh, there's a lot of pressure on these guys. It comes, all comes back to not wanting to lose a dollar or a vote. Not wanting to lose a dollar of vote. So I guess I mean, maybe, Grover Norquist was all over me when I did the carbon tax. I had, I had a discipline in my office. And well, I enjoyed the argument, but it wasn't going to change his mind or mine. What was that like? So, so what, that's very interesting. You had a visit with him in your office. And what, what, was, what was that experience like? What did he say? Uh, he said it's a tax, and he's opposed to it. He can't believe a Republican's doing that. It's going to do all kinds of damage. And I said, nope, no, that's true at all. Not a, it's it's the only most market-oriented way to improve the carbon footprint and reduce the most most carbon-centric fuels, i.e., coal. Well, I mean, think about the cigarette tax. A lot of people aren't smoking. Well, I mean that, yeah. and of course the health risks. But, but well, I mean, you, you look at you look at the Alliance for Market Solutions. Over 100 CEOs and every ex member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors and every ex Secretary of State is for the carbon tax for that very reason as are three of the major oil companies. BP came out last, two weeks ago about it, and Chevron and Exxon have already been for it. Wow. And so is that kind of speaking to your, speaking to your point out of the young people and the polling and awareness that the environment really is a very big issue for both parties? Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. And I think we used to have a seat at the table, and it would be incumbent upon us to get it back. You think it's possible to get it back? Well, if we got a little more open-minded about some of these policies and things, uh, we, we might. So I know that it's difficult for, for a retiring lawmaker to say what he will do after he leaves office, but what are you looking at? Well, the first thing I want to do is just finish up my term. Then I'll deal with all that. Okay. 
Gotcha. Well, thank you again so much for talking to me. I just, there's a lot of interesting issues, and I think the environmental issues is really important for Republicans. Well, that's an opportunity for our team if we could get behind it, for sure. That was Francis Rooney of Florida's 19th District. A big thank you to Chris Berardi for setting up the interview. Oh, and as for Rooney's presidential choice, well, He's keeping that information close to the best. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can write to me at article1podcast at gmail.com. My Twitter handle is at Molly Hooper. On the next episode, I speak with Jose Serrano of New York's 15th District. Serrano has spent decades in the House, but is leaving at the end of this year, and over that time, he has helped his Bronx-based district in many ways, so much so that he has a special mascot who you will learn about in our conversation. Until then, I reserve the right to revise and extend my remarks.